Welcome to the podcast. Our mission is for every man, woman and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. And today I'm speaking with Hank Greeley. Hank is a professor of law and a professor of genetics at Stanford University. He specializes in ethical, legal and social issues arising from advances in the biosciences, particularly from genetics, neuroscience and human stem cell research. He is the president of the International Neuroethics Society and is the chairman of the California Advisory Committee on Human Stem Cell Research. He joined Stanford in 1985 after working in private law practice and in the defense and energy departments during President Carter's administration. And last but not least, he is the author of the book, The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. Hank, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Just one slight correction on the bio. I am very happily the immediate past president of the International Neuroethics Society. I served my two-year term and was released on parole. <laughs> there were so many, reading your bio, there were so many boards and committees and memberships. I was thinking, okay, I've got to just, I'll, I'll be the bio, I'll be going on for you know 20 minutes. You, I could have chosen many, many things. And we were saying just before we click record, that's one of the fun things where you've got a job where you can kind of explore any sort of curiosity. Right. The great thing about being a law professor is I don't need grant funding. I don't need to run a lab. I don't need to hire a bunch of postdocs. Uh, if there's something I want to go explore, I just go explore. Is it possible to take a skin cell from a man, manipulate it a tiny bit and turn it into an egg or vice versa, take a skin cell from a woman and turn it into a sperm cell? No one has done that yet. Okay. Not even with mice. Uh, we have taken mouse skin cells from male mice and turned them into mouse sperm and used those to make baby mice and taken skin cells from female mice and turned them into mouse eggs and used those to make baby mice. People are working on trying to do the same thing with humans, uh, but it's still, uh, it's still a ways off. There's not a lot of uh, either government research funding for it or there hasn't been that much commercial funding for that research either, although I think uh, that's likely to change. The changing genders, several people, several scientists have, have talked to me about plausible ways they think they could do that. But so far, as far as I can tell, no one has tried that even in mice. No one's particularly excited about the idea of gender switching gametes, eggs and sperm in mice. Um, but when you get to humans, there are a lot of people, particularly gay and lesbian couples, who would find that very attractive. So say, for example, yeah, like you said, you have a gay couple and rather than having to go to, say, uh, like a surrogate, they could take one of their cells and it could become uh, an egg and then the sperm could fertilize the egg and have 100% of the DNA of the gay couple. Would that, is, that, is that what would happen? Yes. Um, they would still need a surrogate to carry the fetus. If it was a lesbian couple, lesbian couple, they don't even, they don't even need a surrogate for that. So yeah, right now the best you can do if you're a gay or a lesbian couple and you want to have a child that's genetically related to the two of you, unless you've got, well, the best you can do is use a sibling's egg or sperm. So if two women want to have a baby, one provides the egg, the other doesn't have a sperm to provide. Maybe she's got a brother who can provide a sperm. In that case, you've got a baby that's genetically 50% one of the mother's, 
25% the other mother and then 25% the other mother's brother. Um, that's close, but uh, there are a lot of people who would like to go to the 100%. If a woman wanted to have a child, but she didn't have a partner, could she technically, based on this logic, could she have a child by herself? So she produces the sperm and the egg, and then she... Yeah, and she, then she and, carries and, that child. and provides and provides the womb. Yeah, yeah, um, yes. When I first started writing the book, that never occurred to me. I was talking about it to my colleagues, my law school colleagues, and I think this is some evidence about the degree of egocentrism of law professors. One of my colleagues said, "But wait, couldn't then I could make a baby me?" Um, and in theory, you could. I'm not sure why you would want to. But this is where it gets interesting. It's not a clone of you. It wouldn't be genetically the same as you. So for almost all our genes, we've got two copies, one from our mom, one from our dad. Let's say that your blood type is AB. That means you got a copy of the A blood gene from, a, from one parent and a copy of the B from the other. Okay. If you made a baby out of yourself this way, making an egg from your skin cells, making a sperm from your skin cells, combining them, a quarter of the time, by chance, that baby will have two copies of the A blood type and be blood type A. A quarter of the time, it'll have two copies of the B and be blood type B, and half the time, it'll have one A and one B. Your AB, the chances that the baby will be AB are 50-50. So, it's closer to you than anything. It's genetically closer to you than a sibling, but it's not as close to you as an identical twin, which is another way of saying clone. Identical twins are clones. You think sex will no longer be the way that people make babies. Most babies in the United States will be conceived in a clinic. Uh, already, in many countries, one, two, three percent of babies are conceived in labs through IVF. So, you know, it's not new to make babies someplace other than in bed or the backseat of a car. But I think it's going to get more common because people will be able to use PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and they'll be able to use it more effectively because instead of just having 10 embryos to test from, they'll have 100 embryos. And that's where that other nasty acronym IVG comes in. The big problem with PGD is that you can only test however many embryos you've got. And the problem with IVF is getting eggs to make embryos is expensive, unpleasant, and risky. Mm. Getting sperm, piece of cake. You can get you know, 5 million sperm cheaply and easily. But to get 10 eggs is expensive, unpleasant, and risky. If you can make eggs from skin cells that choke point goes away. That rate limiting factor goes away. So what I envision in the book is that in about 16 to 36 years, um, a couple that wants to have a baby in most countries, in countries that have good healthcare systems, so maybe not the United States, but uh, we'll go to, go to the clinic and they'll make 100 eggs and they'll make 100 embryos, and each one of those embryos will get tested. And instead of testing as we do now, just for a couple of things, they'll do what's called whole genome sequencing and look at the entire DNA of those embryos. 
And they still say, uh-oh, this embryo would get Tay-Sachs disease. You don't want to use that one. This embryo has a higher than normal risk of diabetes. This embryo has a lower than normal risk of schizophrenia. This embryo is likely to have light colored eyes. Can't tell you whether they're going to be blue or green or gray. And we can't tell you for certainty that they won't be dark brown, but higher likelihood of light colored eyes. And parents will take that information and decide which embryos they want to move. That's, that's my best guess of how the future is likely to play out. Um, that guess was published four years ago. Um, I haven't changed it. I do think the early day, the 20 years out is looking somewhat less likely because there hasn't been a great deal of research pro progress on, on IVG on making eggs and sperm, but I still think it's likely to happen, but it won't happen everywhere and it won't happen. You know, different countries will adopt it uh, or, or ban it at different levels. The, the Vatican city is unlikely ever to approve this. Uh, Germany, for historical reasons, is very uh, good historical reasons, is very leery of any kind of human genetics. Uh, but uh, the U.S. would be gung ho for it, I think. Uh, much of East Asia would be very excited about it. Uh, the U.K. is probably not quite as enthusiastic, uh, but um, is relatively liberal on allowing assisted reproduction. So there'd be a lot of variation. And there, there will always be people who make babies the old-fashioned way. Uh, many of them will be teenagers because getting pregnant is something teenagers do. Um, but uh, someone will do it for religious reasons, some for philosophical reasons, some because it just seems more natural or more romantic. Uh, but I think a lot of people will be convinced that it gives them a chance to it's, it's almost like vaccination, which, of course, also has its people who accept it and people who oppose it. But it gives you a chance to have a healthier baby. Now, let me be clear about that. It's not super babies because we don't know enough to make super babies. But there are about 6,000 genetic diseases that we understand and can predict really strongly from looking at the DNA of the embryo. The good news is all 6,000 of those are rare. The bad news is when you multiply rare times 6,000, you get about 2% of births. So any birth has about a 1 in 50 chance of having a, a, a fairly serious genetic condition. Sometimes they're fatal. Sometimes they are disabling. Sometimes they're not particularly bad but a little annoying. I have a genetic condition, like 6% of men. Uh, green doesn't stand out for me as much. I'm, I'm not colorblind. I can tell the difference in stoplights. But the greens aren't as intense as I've told other people see them. Um, that's a genetic condition. I don't care about it. It doesn't bother me. Tay-Sachs disease, I would have been dead 65 years ago. That's a serious genetic condition. A greater risk for breast cancer, colon cancer, well, breast and ovarian cancer, not so much for me, but colon cancer, uh, a greater risk of Alzheimer's disease. Those are genetic things we can predict, not perfectly, but if you've got one version of a, of a gene, your risk of having colon cancer at some point is over 85%. If you've got the average version, it's more like 3%. 
you could tell that in the embryo and parents could say, let's take the embryos that are at lower risk for colon cancer. And I think a lot of parents will want to do that. And mm. you know, just one last thing about that, I think even true in, an, in a completely disorganized, uncivilized, terrible system of healthcare like the one I live under in the United States, um, it will be really attractive because it will save the healthcare system money. Let's say it costs 10,000 pounds to make a baby this way. And uh, so if you make 100 babies, that's a million pounds, which is a fair amount of money. How much money does it cost to take care of one child with a serious genetic disease? It can cost millions of pounds in the first year, let alone in years to come. Now, that may change as we get better at dealing with genetic disease. But right now, genetic diseases are really expensive. And if you can avoid them by having parents do easy, what I call easy PGD, this PGD plus IVG, in vitro gametogenesis, it saves the healthcare system money. Uh, I think this will be, in most countries, free for parents because the healthcare systems will save money that way. Uh, and, and also because it's just and equal and good to have access for everybody. But even in systems that don't care much about that, like my system, unlike your system, Unlike the NHS, um, I think the we do care about the financial side. So I think it's I think it's likely to be free. You and you guys have to care about the financial side too. I've heard you talk about de-extinction before, also known as resurrection biology. I love that phrase, resurrection biology, bringing extinct animals back from the dead. How how close a reality is this? I actually argued against the resurrection term and in favor of de-extinction, even though it's a little clunky. I like, I like them both. I like de-extinction and resurrection biology. It sounded so dramatic. The religious, the religious implications of resurrection were something I thought we really, we really didn't want to get into. I didn't even think about the religious. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, again, this may be a difference in national cultures. It's harder not to think about uh, Christian religious issues in the U.S. than it is in uh, post-Christian United Kingdom, uh, largely post-Christian United Kingdom. So people are working on it. Okay. The project that's gotten the most attention is the woolly mammoth, uh, because everybody loves woolly mammoths, right? Um, I think that's not what's going to happen first. The woolly mammoth is the gateway drug. That opens up the floodgates, and then we that's can... That's right. <laughs> but, 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 the, but the problem is the woolly mammoth is hard. Okay. So, for you know, you've got to get an Asian elephant, a female Asian elephant, to carry the embryo. Female, how much do we know about IVF and female Asian elephants? Eh, not very much. How much, how easy is it to work uh, gynecologically or obstetrically on female Asian elephants? You know, it's not that easy. And on top of everything else, how long is a female Asian elephant pregnant? 22 months. Really? God. Yeah, I mean, my wife thought nine months was forever. Uh, 22 months, you know, that's almost enough time to have three babies if you're, if you're human. So, so you do a test, and then you find out two and a half years later your test was unsuccessful, and then you have to try again, and you have to keep on waiting two and a half years just to see, like, get feedback. So it's not a quick feedback loop. Right. So I think it's, there is research money being spent on... Uh, something called the passenger pigeon, which was a native pigeon species to eastern North America. 
there were three to five billion passenger pigeons in eastern North America, up and down from, from the south to Canada, mainly along the Appalachian Mountains on our eastern edge. And within 100 years, we killed them all off. We shot them, we hunted them, hunted them we ate them. The last one died in 1919. But we've got DNA from them, from some of the, some of the ones were preserved, and people have been able to get the entire DNA sequence, all of the, the letters of the DNA for the passenger pigeon. Turns out there's another pigeon here on, on the West Coast, where I live, called the bantail pigeon, which is genetically pretty similar to the passenger pigeon. So there are people I know uh, working at UC Santa Cruz who are looking at those two genomes and trying to figure out how to change the bantail pigeon's genome, take cells from bantail pigeons, edit their DNA so that it's more like a passenger pigeon DNA. And then once they get a cell that looks a lot like a passenger pigeon genetically, figure out how to turn that into an egg, a bird egg, and a pigeon chick. There's another species that's under a lot of consideration called the heath hen, which was a small bird in, eastern, uh, in, in the eastern United States and New England. That went extinct in the 30s. Uh, there are people who are really excited about uh, the Tasmanian tiger, also known as the thylacine, a predatory animal in Australia. The last Tasmanian tiger died out in 1936, I think, in a zoo in Hobart, Tasmania. And I, I recommend go online and Google Tasmanian tiger video. And you can see videos of this thing. It looks at first like it, running around. Uh, I mean, it's, they were films, they weren't videos in 1935, but you can see it on YouTube. It looks like a dog, and then you look a little more closely, and it's got sort of a strange-looking head, and it's got stripes near, its, near the back of its body. And then you notice its tail is sort of flat, and it doesn't move normally. That's a marsupial, and it's got a pouch, like all the Australian native mammals. And my grandparents, had they lived in Tasmania, could have seen it. Not my grandparents, my parents, had they lived in Tasmania, could have seen it. You can see it on film as a real live thing, and it's gone. And there are people who would like to bring it back. There's one other sort of example that I think is especially interesting. So if you're interested in, in de-extinction, there's an organization called Revive and Restore, run by a couple of friends of mine, Stuart Brand, who invented the Whole Earth Catalog, course, yeah. did many cool things. He is one of the most charismatic and interesting people I've ever met. And his wife, Ryan Phelan, who's also charismatic and interesting, although it's hard to, to kind of get it to get to Stewart's level, um, they run an organization called Revive and Restore, which is very interested in de-extinction. They've got a web page. One of the um, things that they pointed out is you can use this not only to try to bring back extinct species, but try to save species that are on the edge of extinction. And there's an example of that. There is a subspecies of rhinoceros called the northern white rhino. There are two northern white rhinos left in existence. They're both female, so they can't mate with each other. We have some saved sperm from some dead male northern white rhinos, but both these females are too old, apparently, to have uh, babies, to carry babies. 
So the San Diego Zoo has been, ex- which has a, a herd of southern white rhinos, the other subspecies, has been exploring using technology. So far, not genetic technology, but IVF technology to try to make more northern white rhino eggs and sperm using IVG and make northern white rhinos and hope that the southern white rhino mothers can carry them. So that's not that's that's not quite the extinction. The northern white rhino isn't extinct yet, Mm. but it's a zombie species. It's the living dead. These two last last ones are unless technology intervenes, the last there will ever be. So there is activity going on in this. Um, and it's, it's really, it's fascinating stuff. Is, is the key, you've always got to find uh, something to carry it. So you always mentioned there's got to be uh, a, a comparable animal. So say you wanted to bring back the dodo, like do you have to, you have to find, I don't know what it, its closest is. Is it an ostrich? I'm not sure. But like, do you have to find something which could maybe carry it? Actually, dodos were big flightless pigeons pigeons okay so unless unless you've got a comparable then it's it's futile you've got to have something which could carry the 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 baby yes ish so with mammals definitely okay but birds lay eggs so you wouldn't so you don't have as long a period of development but you would need you'd need to have that early embryo develop into an egg and something how similar that other bird has to be, we don't know yet. There are a lot of, you know, a lot of tough, interesting scientific questions that scientists will be intrigued by just for their own sake that will need to be answered if we actually end up doing a fair amount of de-extinction. But one of them is just how close does the species have to be? We know we've been able to have, among mammals, one species carry a different species. So... Um, there's an ox called a guar, G-U-A-R. It's a separate species. And there have been guars born from female cows, from cattle. So you take the guar embryo, you put it in the cow, and the cow is able to, the cow's uh, uterus is able to nurture and, and bring that guar to term. And there, there are several different closely related animals where that's happened. So we know in principle it can be done. The species lines aren't that tight. How close does the match have to be? We don't know. Presumably, the guess is the closer the better. But we don't know. I need to make a segue. Jack Gallant at uh, UC Berkeley, he's made some progress in being able to read people's minds. I use the word progress. I'm not saying it's he done it but it's it, it's making interesting steps could you maybe explain what he's up to sure i love jack jack is a really creative scientist a fun guy and he's somebody who's really interested and concerned about the ethical implications of his work um, jack uses fmri so mri magnetic resonance imaging it's a scanning technology um Many people have had an MRI for back problems or knee problems. It's better than x-rays in that it can see soft tissue, not just bone. It's really good for the brain because there is no hard tissue in the brain. You know, it's, it's all soft tissue. We can call somebody a, uh, we can say that they're boneheaded, but there actually aren't any bones in the brain. So the, an x-ray of the brain shows 
nothing. Actually, it just shows the skull. It doesn't get through into the brain. But an MRI of the brain can show you in great detail, can make a three-dimensional computer-generated image of your brain, which will look different from my brain or even your identical twin's brain, if you had an identical twin. Everybody's brain looks different. If you put the little F in front of MRI, the little F stands for functional. And so what that looks for is not just the shape and the, the geography of your brain, but how it's working. In a classic fMRI experiment, we would put you into a scanner, into an MRI machine, and we would give you some sort of stimulus. Uh, maybe, you know, you're lying there in the dark. Have you ever been in an MRI machine? Never. I've heard it's quite, it's quite a, and quite loud and quite intense, isn't it? Yes, it's quite weird and strange noises at random times. And, you know, it, it's okay if you're not claustrophobic, but it, it is weird. So you're in there and you've got headphones on. And at some point they play a little bit of uh, the stones, the, the rolling stones. They play a little stones and then there's a gap. And then a little later they play a little Mozart and then there's a gap. And what the machine is doing is looking at blood flow in your brain. Specifically, it's looking at the ratio of the hemoglobin, which is the molecule in red blood cells that carries oxygen. The ratio of the hemoglobin that has oxygen attached to it to the hemoglobin that doesn't. And that turns out to be something that MRI machines are really good at seeing. Don't ask me why it has to do with magnetism. And I don't know. But they're really good at it. And they then, they look at this over time and they apply, now this was a good, this was a smart acronym. They apply the BOLD hypothesis. Blood oxygen level determinant, determination. The theory behind this is when a part of your brain has worked, two to four seconds later, that part of the brain is flooded with fresh blood because the brain is an energy hog. It uses a lot of oxygen and sugar. Your brain is, from looking at your size, your brain is probably about 2% of your body weight. But right now, when you're not engaged in any serious physical exercise, it's using about 18% of all the energy in your body. God. Yeah. So it's, it's very, it's very expensive. It may be why there aren't that many animals with big brains. Big brains are expensive. High maintenance. Yeah, uh, seriously. So if an area of your brain has just worked two to four seconds later, it's flooded with fresh blood and that shows up differently on the MRI. And what they'll do is look to see, ah, this is when we played the stones three seconds later there was new blood in this area and this area and this area. And then 30 seconds later, when we played a little Mozart, three seconds after we played the Mozart, there was increased blood flow in that area, that area, that area. And they could say, ah, we found the site of rock versus the site of classical music. Now, nobody has ever done that. Uh, to my knowledge, but they've done just about everything else, including a wonderful study from a British scientist, Zeki, uh, Shamir Zeki, I think, Amir Zeki, who uh, got a lot of headlines for finding the site of true love. So they took a lot of, uh, got some young volunteers who said they were madly, passionately, deeply, head over heels in love. And he had them bring in photos, kind of passport sort of photos, head and shoulder photos, color photos, of their loved one and six friends of the same gender as their loved one. 
put them in the scanner, show them the pictures. You know, you'll get two seconds of one and then five seconds of nothing and then two seconds of a different photo and five seconds of nothing. And they do that for an hour. Got to be incredibly boring. And then they look to see where does the blood flow go? And they found statistically significantly that different areas lit up, which is the technical term, different areas had slightly higher ratios of oxygenated to deoxygenated hemoglobin when people saw their loved one than when they saw a friend. And that gets translated in the press as scientist finds the site of true love. Now, Jack uses that technique. So there's a lot of hype to that technique. There's a lot of uncertainty to that technique. And even in that true love case, it only worked for about 70% of people. So don't do this at home, right? And we don't know. Were the others, in fact, not really in love with the person they thought they were in love with? Or were their brains just wired a little differently? No idea. But Jack uses that to try to find correlations between what people are seeing and then more recently what people are thinking and blood flow. And he's gotten so – there's a wonderful uh, video from, gosh, I think it's now seven or eight years ago where he recreates um, movie trailers from people's brain images. Now, it's not perfect but it's surprisingly good. There's a scene where an elephant walks across a plane. And in the recreation, you see what looks like a haystack moving across a flat surface. You wouldn't necessarily say that's an elephant, but then when you see the original one, you say, oh yeah, that's what that is. Um, so th and that's old work. More recently, he's been doing things like trying to figure out whether people are thinking about pets, and if so, are they thinking about dogs or cats? Now, he's not real good yet, but he's getting better all the time. Right now, fMRI is it's strong enough to tell us about things on average. So it could say in most people, this area lights up when they're hungry. But it can't necessarily say in you, it lights up when you're hungry. And it certainly can't say, and he really wants some fish and chips. If we get the next generation of brain imaging and it turns out, as is hoped to be, say, 10 times better, we might well get to the point where we can say, oh, he wants fish and chips, but he doesn't want any vinegar on it. God, that would be fascinating if you get that far. Yes. And, and that's the sort of thing that Jack is working on right now. This sort of fMRI brain reading, mind reading is limited because the fMRI isn't sensitive enough to show us enough detail. It can show us an area about eight cubic millimeters. So think about a little cube, two millimeters on a side. Uh, it's about, if you think about a, a black, a, a little round black peppercorn, you know, the thing you grind to make pepper, yeah. but make it a cube instead of a sphere, it's about that size. So if we could make that tighter, if we could make that much more accurate, then rather than that haystack moving across the screen, we could actually have almost a more, almost like, like, you know, early digital cameras, which were like really pixelated kind of crap. And they're just getting more and more refined. So then we can have that detail. And, and you know, we could see maybe the same sort of detail that you and I are seeing of each other on Skype. So now that's, I don't expect to live long enough for that to happen, but we will get better 
And it's really a question of making the tools better to give us what it looks like we think. It's a question of getting the tools better to give us more tighter resolution. Um, that area, that, that eight cubic millimeter area, might have a million neurons going through it or 100,000 neurons going through it. And maybe only six of them are important. But right now, you get all million. If we could make that you know, 0.8 cubic millimeters, then we've got 1,000 neurons. If we could make it 0.08, then we've got 10 neurons. And uh, things things get better. So, yes, I think <laughs> I started in this in this field working on genetics. Then I got off into cloning and stem cell research and then neuroscience. I think neuroscience makes genetics look easy and genetics is really hard. <laughs> I think neuroscience is 10 times as complicated as genetics, uh, which is part of what drew me to it because, you know, we're not going to figure it out during my lifetime. I'll still have plenty of work to do. Based on that research we were just talking about, what do you think some of the implications are? Or like, what are some of the ways this technology could be used? People are really excited about the possibilities of using it in criminal cases to determine whether somebody's telling the truth or not. Uh, can't do that yet. Uh, maybe someday. Uh, whether somebody, you know, the criminal says, I feel so terrible, I feel such great remorse. Well, you know, we might be able to figure out whether he actually does feel remorse or whether he's just saying that. Uh, I actually think probably its first use in law won't be in criminal cases at all, uh, but will be in cases where pain is an issue because we don't have any very good physical tests for pain. You know, if you've just broken your arm and shards of your arm are sticking out through your skin, that's a pretty good test for pain. <laughs> but um, if you've got back pain, we have really crummy tests for physical tests for whether or not somebody's in back pain or not. Back pain uh, is a common source of disability so that people can't work because they've got back pain. Um, they want, in the U.S., you can get Social Security disability coverage for that and get paid because you can no longer work. But there's no good test to know whether somebody has back pain or not. So sometimes people get the money when they shouldn't. I have an aunt who I think did that. <laughs> uh, yeah, when, when she retired on disability, it just let her play golf more often. Um, sometimes, but sometimes people who should get the payments don't get them. If we had a good test for that, and there are scientists, including um, uh, there are scientists all over the world who are looking into using fMRI to decide whether somebody is feeling the sensation of pain. Mm. It's really interesting work. I think it's, it's very promising. I think it's going to succeed. But what, one of the interesting things about it is it doesn't say why you're having pain or whether you, quote, should, close quote, be having pain. So there have been some experiments where students have been hypnotized to feel pain. A classic pain experiment, you take a, a metal bar and you touch somebody's skin and the bar is heated. And I can never remember whether it's in the 40s or in the 50s C. I think it's like at 46 C, almost everybody feels it as painful. It's not enough to burn. It doesn't leave any lasting damage, but they feel it. Pain. Some people feel it at 42, at 44, at 40. Everybody feels it by 46. These people have been hypnotized to feel pain. They feel it, and it's 38. They shouldn't feel any pain at all, and they report feeling pain. 
and their brain signal says they're feeling pain. That's interesting because then it comes back to the question of what's reality is like everything's kind of subjective. So that's a whole different, that's a whole different argument, isn't it? Right, right. It's kind of matrix like, but in in some sense you exist only in my brain as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, And so if the brain thinks it's real, does that make it real? So um, I just think that the neuroscience is huge, exciting. I, I commend, recommend to all your listeners, the International Neuroethics Society. Uh, now that I'm the past president, I no longer get to use the society jet or get those big bucks. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> right. Uh, but it's, it's a place where people are um, talking and thinking about these kinds of neuroethics issues. One of the things I've enjoyed about researching you is that you, you ask really – interesting and tough questions questions that don't have easy answers and i'm just going to read back something which i read of what you said about one percent of adult males in the u.s are psychopaths and but if you do that test in prison about 30 percent of prisoners are psychopaths what if we could figure out which 10 out of a thousand 12 year old boys were going to be psychopaths what would we do with that information would we lock them up and throw away the key would we do nothing would we treat them but we don't really know what treatments work, if any. Would we put a GPS bracelet on them or would we warn the neighbours? And I don't have an answer. The way you were saying it, there there isn't an easy answer to any of those questions. But when we are addressing these things like neuroscience and when we are learning more about genetics, it brings up these these huge questions. And um, like I said, there's there's no easy answer, but we're going to have to start answering these questions or asking these questions. And it's, it's, it's just interesting times. So, so what I love about it, well, what I love about what I do is it's fun. I really enjoy it, as you may have noticed. But, but my excuse for doing it is a faith-based rationale, because I don't have good empirical evidence for this. I think if we think about these issues and worry about them in advance, we're less likely to screw things up. I used to think, well, you know, we'll try to make, maximize the benefits, minimize the harms, way too ambitious. If we could just avoid some catastrophes, that would be a good thing. And I do think that the more people know and the more people talk about it and the more people think about it, the more likely we are to avoid catastrophes. And that's my excuse for doing what I do. But the real reason I do it is because it's fun. Hank, thank you so much. I know you've got an appointment to get to. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and speaking with me. I really appreciate it. And um, how can people find out more about you and your work? Can we, can we send them anywhere? I have a website. It's not all that great, but it's Stanford Law School. But there aren't a lot of Hank Greeley's out there. So if you Google Hank Greeley, I'll pop up. Happiness.info